Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It was a cold day on December 13th, 1995. Julian Melissa had been missing for almost seven months. Inspector René Michaud of the Gendarmerie, along with two colleagues and a locksmith, pulled up to Dutroux's residence on 128 Rue de Philippeville in Marcinelle, in the municipality of Charlevoix. They had the house to themselves as Dutroux was in jail for stealing a truck and kidnapping his accomplices. The search was officially linked to the car theft scheme and should have been carried out by the municipal police. But the gendarme Michaud managed to unsurp the warrant and carry out the search with his own team of gendarmes. If you recall, the gendarmes were already secretly surveilling Dutroux's house as he was their main suspect in the disappearance of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. Michaud sent his colleagues upstairs to see what they could find and headed down to the basement with a locksmith. The team upstairs found several suspicious items including chloroform, sedatives, vaginal ointment, video cassettes, and a speculum used by gynecologists for vaginal examinations. 
While searching the basement, the locksmith thought that he'd heard voices of children. And he said to Michaud, Listen, I hear voices. Écoute, j'entends des voix. Michaud also heard what he would later call, quote, whispers, and abruptly shouted to his colleagues upstairs to shut up. After Michaud yelled, shut up, to quiet his colleagues, the voices stopped. After a period of silence, Michaud said that it must have been voices playing in the street outside or something. When the locksmith insisted about what he'd heard, Michaud turned to him and said, Who's the cop here? You or me? C'est qui le flic ici? Toi ou moi? After that, the search was over and the team left the house. Julie and Melissa were in that hidden dungeon and alive, literally a few feet away. somebody who understands emotions. And I told them it is very exceptional that somebody abducts two children at the same time. Should have been the end of it in 1986. But my God, it was just the beginning. I think Belgium was a paradise for perverts in those days. Welcome to Le Monstre. I'm your host, Matt Graves. The unsuccessful search of Detrue's house where Julie and Melissa were suffering in silence is a sickening tragedy. It's crazy when you think about it, that the gendarmes had been surveilling his house for four months already with their secret Operation Othello. There were countless opportunities to get a search warrant during these four months. But the gendarmerie kept it a secret and never informed the judge. Also, they didn't want anyone else to search the house. In fact, this failed search wasn't even supposed to be done by the gendarmerie. The warrant was to look for clues related to the stolen car case. But the gendarmes pulled some strings and got the green light to do the search themselves. You would think that this was a good outcome. Rather than stolen cars, they should have been focused on finding the girls. But the locksmith who accompanied Michaud downstairs had no idea that they were looking for kidnapped victims. When later questioned under oath, this locksmith said, I don't know a single person who would have left the basement after what they heard if they knew they were searching for little girls. I cannot conceive how they could stop searching after hearing such clear voices. As mentioned, the gendarmes found several video cassettes and collected them as evidence. One of the tapes was a recording of a television show dedicated to the disappearance of Julie and Melissa. Another one was footage of Detrue himself building the dungeon in that very house. If you're looking for Julie and Melissa and you have reports of girls being seen in the house, these two tapes alone are a clear indication that you're on the right track. But the incompetence of the gendarmerie can't be underestimated. One of the gendarmes searching upstairs would later claim that he didn't even know they were looking for little girls. To make matters worse, several of the tapes included pornographic material, including one of Detrue raping a minor. The contents of these tapes supposedly weren't discovered until 1999 because no one bothered to properly analyze them. In fact, some of the tapes simply went missing, and several of them were actually returned to Detrue after he got out of jail for car theft in March 1996, including the one featuring him raping a minor. 
Is this level of incompetence even possible? Or was something else going on? On that day, December 16, 1995, had the gendarmes done their job, Julie and Melissa would have been rescued and reunited with their parents, leading to the possible rescue of Anne and Effia. Dutroux and his accomplices would have been stopped before Sabine and Letitia were ever even abducted. It's heartbreaking to know how close these parents were to avoiding such a horrible tragedy. Nothing about the Operation Othello or the bungled search had come out to the public until after the Parliamentary Commission pried it out of the gendarmes under oath on live television. A camera was filming the faces of the parents as they listened to Inspector Michaud squirm on the hot seat. You can see the wary face of Julie's father, Jean-Denis Lejeune, as he digests what he was hearing. He's a stoic man, still loved by millions of people in this country. A working-class man of the people who labored in a factory, paid his taxes, and raised a modest family. He maintained his composure, but couldn't hold back the tears from streaming down his face. To add insult to injury, the parents learned that Inspector Michaud even returned to Dutroux's house for a second search of the property, again on December 19th. He was just steps away from Julie and Melissa for a second time and still found nothing. When the Parliamentary Commission started, none of the parents knew anything about the fact that Dutroux had been the gendarme's number one suspect shortly after their girls actually disappeared. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. 
It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The girls disappeared the 24th of June, and from the 7th of July, they had Marc Dutroux as their top suspect. I spoke to Karine Rousseau, the mother of Melissa. They were all aware of Operation Othello and that they were supposed to surveil the activities of Dutroux. And it dragged on and on, and the fiasco of Operation Othello was never understood by us, nor by the Parliamentary Commission. I asked her if she thought that Inspector Michaud was just stupid, or was it something else? Because his level of incompetence was just so unbelievable. It's complicated because his incompetence is incomprehensible. When I saw him at the commission, I had the impression I was in front of a man who was afraid. The gendarmes seemed like okay guys who wanted to find the girls. But at the same time, they seemed like they were afraid of everything. The failure of the gendarmerie to question the true and to properly search his properties is really hard to square. The Parliamentary Commission did a good job of exposing the incompetence of the gendarmerie no matter how hard they tried to hide it. The official conclusion of this commission is that what the gendarmes did and failed to do was indeed a fiasco, but that nothing concrete could be found to prove that Dutroux was somehow protected. I have a strong distaste for conspiracy theories, but as I study the facts, I'm starting to have doubts about the official line. 
While reading Karine Rousseau's memoirs, I stumbled across an odd anecdote about something that happened in December 1995, around the same time frame of the failed search of Dutroux's house. She wrote about a visit they received at the time from a gendarme named Valère Martin. According to Karine's account, he came to their house in early December, claiming that one of the girls had been located. After having read almost everything on this case, this was a detail I'd never heard about. The Dutroux affair is full of rabbit holes. And when I read this, I thought this must have just been something that was misinterpreted or perhaps overplayed. I had to hear it straight from Kareen directly and really understand how it played out. Because if true, it flies in the face of the conclusions of the Parliamentary Commission, the trial of Dutroux, and the majority of the Belgian press today. It was the gendarme Valère Martin, a field officer, working on the investigation of the disappearance of Julie and Melissa. It was with him that we had the most contact. He was the investigator that came, not every day, but at least every week. He stayed in contact with us to see if we had any news on our side, and we asked him for news, but he never had any. So he came by at the beginning of December, but I can't remember the exact date. And at that time, he told us that there was an operation underway and that we might be able to open champagne by Christmas because we might have the girls back by then. He said we had to keep it on the down low and sit tight, but there was hope. And he said the problem was that they couldn't do anything for the moment because they had located one of the girls, but not both of them. And if they undertook an operation for just one of the girls because they knew where she was, they could put the other girl at risk. So they had located one of the girls, but they needed to wait to know where the other one was before making a move. That's what he said. That was what he explained to us at that time. I didn't want to offend Corrine. But this is a huge statement with serious implications. I had to ask her if there were others who'd witnessed this conversation. At the time, Jean Denis and Louisa Lejeune and my husband and I were here. They were almost always here at the house, and also my brother and sister-in-law were here. At the time, they were practically living here to help us with everything. And we asked him which of the girls it was, and he didn't want to answer because it was too hard, and we understood. In a way, we didn't even want to know which of the girls it was. Because imagine if we had learned, for example, that they found Melissa, but they couldn't save her because they hadn't found Julie, or the other way around. It's really hard, I think. We didn't even want to know. But my brother took him aside and asked which girl it was, and the gendarme told him that the girl they had located was Melissa, and he told me afterwards. This moment was a tipping point for me. There I was, sitting with Corinne Rousseau on her back porch, less than a mile from where this whole tragedy started. I had assumed that this story was some sort of rumor, but she was absolutely adamant. And it wasn't just her who'd witnessed this event, but her husband, brother, and sister-in-law, and the mother and father of Julie Lejeune. But I don't know, because there was never any follow-up on this. Because after this, we never saw the gendarme again. 
From the beginning of January, they told us that the investigators couldn't contact us anymore and that we couldn't have contact with the gendarmerie any longer. I couldn't believe what I was hearing and maybe overstepped the boundaries of the interview by asking how they didn't just grab him by the neck and force the details out of him. What did he know? Did he really have something? We had confidence in them. We had so much hope. And what he was telling us was that the thread that we were holding on to... So we respected what they said and what they asked of us. They said to stay discreet. Don't do anything. Something's going to happen. So we were holding on so tightly to that thread of hope that we did whatever they asked of us. And after, when we realized during the Parliamentary Commission, when we discovered Operation Othello and the search of Dutroux's house and that he'd been arrested in December, etc., we realized that this happened exactly at the same time of the searches of Dutroux's house in Marcinelle by the gendarme from Chalois. So it happened at that time. So was there... At that time, an operation planned to save the girls that failed? I asked her if she ever followed up with this gendarme after everything came out. After the girls were found, we went to see him at his house during the month of September 1996. And we asked him for answers because he sent us a letter where he wrote, quote, I will never excuse those who prevented me from working. And so we found him and said, now you're going to have to explain. Who were the people who prevented you from working? Who are they and what happened? And he was in tears and his wife was in tears and she was begging us saying, no, don't try to find out. We're going to lose everything. You don't understand what it's like for gendarmes. In the gendarmerie, you can't talk. She was explaining this and asking us to leave and saying that they'd lose everything. And I said, no, we lost everything. We lost our girl. And now your tears and your story aren't going to make me cry. But he never said anything. And when the Parliamentary Commission happened, a deputy relayed our question. He asked him about this very directly in public. And he said, quote, I don't remember. I tried to track down the former gendarme Valère Martin and even his wife, but they've both since passed away. I spoke to an ex-colleague of his who's still an active duty police officer in Liège. But he wouldn't say a word about it. In fact, he said he'd never even heard of this story and was, quote, stunned by what I was telling him. But I know that's not true, as he was at the Parliamentary Commission when this question was asked directly to Valère Martin. So I decided it wasn't worth continuing the discussion. He clearly wasn't being frank with me. The practical consequences of this are significant. If the gendarmerie had located one of the girls in December of 1995, it changes everything. Simply put, it would mean that the explanation of the gendarmerie, confirmed by the Parliamentary Commission in 1997 and the Court of Appeals in 2004, is a lie. You shouldn't underestimate that the gendarmerie was a military structure. So they think strategically, they accept collateral damage, 
It was not a police force as you and me probably would think of a police force. It was a power mechanism. This is the voice of Jan Fermont, one of the lawyers who represented Letitia Deleuze during the trial of Dutroux in 2004. Several notable journalists, as well as victims' family members, suggested he could provide insight into various aspects of the case. The gendarmerie had an internal system where there was an indication that the gendarme was involved in criminal activity. There was an internal ban on communication to the prosecutor. It had to go up the hierarchy first, and only with the authorization of the hierarchy it could go to the prosecution. So this was a culture. Uh, and that has led, for example, to the fact that uh, the National Drug Bureau of the Belgian Gendarmerie, who was working very closely together with the DEA at that time, yeah. actually became one of the main uh, drug dealers on the Belgian market. Huh? <laughs> because, <laughs> And the gendarme who found out that actually the cocaine was his boss's... Uh, <laughs> He, he ran into that by chance uh, after going 10 times up the hierarchy and saying, we have a problem, there are kilos of cocaine passing and my boss is uh, involved in that. He actually at some point said, I, the law says that I should go to the prosecutor and it went out of its own initiative to the prosecutor. And the next day he was uh, removed from his job. That guy ended up after 40 years of career as an investigator, as a specialized investigator, ended up washing cars in the garage of the gendarmerie. And there are many, many uh, actually incredible stories in which the, the gendarmerie got involved in that period. Uh, members of the gendarmerie uh, putting a bomb in the car of another member of the gendarmerie, which happened here in Brussels, uh, trying to uh, kill with the machine gun fire another member of the gendarmerie, which happened to Major Vernaille. It's rather heavy stuff. Huh? Yeah. Uh, and all this is the 80s and the 90s. Huh? We are in the middle of a period where uh, all kinds of stuff is happening in the gendarmerie, which is outrageous, huh? yeah. uh, which is far beyond what any normal person would expect or would, would believe, huh? but it's all reality. I asked him about this gendarme named Valère Martin, who at one point told Julie and Melissa's families that one of the girls had been located, and he told me an interesting story about a scene that played out at trial in 2004. You'll hear him mention the name Lesage. Lesage was Valère Martin's boss at the gendarmerie. He was called to testify at the trial along with Valère Martin and another gendarme. So the next day when we come into the courtroom, uh, somebody comes to me and says, um, do you know that Lesage and his two other colleagues received a long briefing yesterday from their former superior in the gendarmerie, what they should say and what they shouldn't say, and this former colonel of the gendarmerie, drove them in his car here and will be present in the room. So the three gendarmes were subpoenaed at the court case. Strangely, their former boss, a high-ranking officer in the gendarmerie, spent the days before briefing them and then actually drove them to the hearings. You see this guy leaning against the door in the back uh, with a leather jacket and uh, this is Colonel such and so. 
Yeah, so there are one by one, the three uh, are, are called. The Sage comes in before anything else. The Sage says, I have no, nothing to say. And the president tells him, maybe please wait a second because at least I want to ask you your name. Uh, <laughs> of course, after some time, some questions are asked and the only thing I said, I have nothing, I have no, nothing to say, which I think is an absolutely intolerable attitude huh? because he is on the road. I mean, you're a policeman, you're working with the money of the taxpayers to solve a case and then when the court asks you to ask to, to respond to a question, you say, I don't want to talk to you. Huh? Uh, nothing. Huh? The second member of the team comes in and plays a piece of theatre. Yeah, yeah, Julie and Melissa, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I don't. No, I don't remember that. No, no, I, I, I know I worked on this case, huh? but uh, no, no, no. That's a long time ago. Then the third one, I think, that was Valéry Martin comes in, and so he comes in. Instead of going to the witness stand, he comes to the the bench where I sit. I'm sitting next to Jean Denis Lejeune. This policeman even doesn't greet the court. He immediately comes to Jean Denis Lejeune, and he says, Jean Denis, Jean Denis. <laughs> I understood everything now. <laughs> Jean Denis de Lejeune says, says, Yeah, but please go to the witness stand and tell the court because if you know anything, please take the stand and say what you know. And then nothing. So I got a little bit angry because you can't ask directly questions. So you, as a civil party, you have to go through the court, say, please, Mr. President, could you ask the witness such and such information? Then the president decides whether yes or no you ask the question. So I said, could you please ask the last witness why he is crying, why he is doing this? Huh? <laughs> no answer. Could you ask the witness if maybe he is scared of somebody? Is he maybe scared of this gentleman standing against, leaning against the door, who is Colonel such and so from the gendarmerie, who brought these three people yesterday in his personal car to this place, who gave them a briefing the day before yesterday about what they could say, what they could not say. Is he maybe afraid of making statements because this gentleman is uh, watching what he is saying? Nothing. I then said to the president, this is really impossible. And then the president of the court turned to me and said, I understand your frustration. I understand we are all frustrated. But what do you want me to do? Torture is not allowed. And that's approximately the only thing I, I, I see what I can do to, to, to make them speak. He was right. He can't force them to speak. The attitude of keeping the information to themselves, not sharing it, trying to keep as many people out of the discussion as they could, actually went even on during the trial and they organized it. Obviously, the three of them playing some kind of game to not to get involved in, question, in real questioning, it was an organized thing. I mean, yeah. I think it's an indication of how keen they were or how worried they were about being transparent and open about what actually happened. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. 
It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. 
Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The month of December 1995 was a pivotal time in this affair. On the 6th of December, Dutroux was detained for car theft and kidnapping of adults. On the 13th and 19th of December, Inspector Michaud of the Gendarmerie executed searches of the house where Julie and Melissa were hidden without finding them. And right around this same time, a gendarme told the families of Julie and Melissa that one of the girls had been located and that they were waiting to locate both of the girls before making any moves. When the parents never heard back from Valère Martin, they of course agitated with the gendarmerie to get more information. Valère Martin was censured by his superiors after word got out about what he'd said. I've seen a copy of this censure, which is in the case file, and it ends with the following sentence, quote, I remind you that no details of any kind, including new information, verifications carried out, or any information about the investigation can be communicated to the parents even for reasons of humanity." Unquote. The hopeful news about locating the girls was followed by a wall of silence. The silence that Karine wrote about in her journal entry on December 27, 1995. Silence of your disappearance. Silence of the legal system. Silence of the powerful. Scandalous silence. Accomplice of crime and misfortune. Christmas had come and gone, and there was no champagne celebration of finding the girls as promised. The desperation of Corrine's journal entries at this time is excruciating. At one point, her despair drove her to run out of the house at night into the dark windswept field next to where Julie and Melissa disappeared and scream helplessly into oblivion. Pourquoi? Or why? Pourquoi? Pourquoi? While Dutroux was in prison for auto theft and adult kidnapping, his wife and partner in crime, Michel Martin, was living at their house in Sars-la-Buissière, and Julie and Melissa were alone in the dungeon in Marcinelle. Michel Martin later testified that she went to the house in Marcinelle every few days to feed their two German shepherds, but that she was afraid to go into the basement. She fed the dogs, but not the two eight-year-old girls. Again, according to their own testimony, Dutroux ordered his wife to enter the dungeon to give the girls provisions and empty the buckets he'd placed there for the girls to use the toilet. It wasn't until mid-January that she claimed to have gone down to the basement. The house was cold and dark, and it stank from neglect as the hungry dogs were barking. The two police searches had left the unkept dump into more disarray than usual. Michel Martin later explained to the court what happened. These are her words, not her voice. I went down to the basement and I was shaking like a leaf. When I reached the door to the dungeon, I was faced with a dilemma. I wanted to open it, but at the same time, I refused to do it. I was afraid of those children. In my mind, there was an image of lions, of ferocious animals that would attack me. Nonetheless, she stated that she overcame her fear of these ferocious eight-year-old girls and shoved some provisions through the door and then quickly closed it. From then on, she returned every few days to feed the dogs, but never went down to the basement again. 
On March 20, 1995, the true was finally released from jail just after four months of being charged for car theft and adult kidnapping. He had been condemned for other kidnappings years earlier. Then he was paroled. Then he kidnapped our girls. Then he was arrested for car theft and kidnapping. And he was already on parole for kidnapping. And then, after four months, he's released. A guy who's on parole keeps kidnapping people, gets released from his current sentence for kidnapping. And the reason? I swear to you, this is documented in the file. Humanitarian reasons. That's the way it's written, for humanitarian reasons. Because the heat was off at his wife, Madame Martin's house, and she needed him to repair the heating. He's freed because his old lady is cold. It's what's written. We thought, how could this be possible? If someone told you, you'd say, no, it can't be like that. But when you see it, it's what's written. The world is full of stories of nut jobs getting out of prison too early. But this one is particularly egregious. Remember, Dutroux was still on parole from his previous early release for kidnapping and raping five girls when he again got busted for theft and kidnapping. But they still released him without bail. Dutroux later claimed that when he got back to the house in March, Julie wasn't responding and Melissa was alive but struggling. He said that he tried to nurse them back to health, but that it was too late and that both of them died in March. One thing we know for sure about Marc Dutroux is that he's a liar. Karine Rousseau, her husband, and the parents of Julie don't believe his story about the end of Julie and Melissa's life. The condition of the girls for three and a half months locked in a dungeon like that to survive by themselves is completely improbable. You can't survive in conditions like that for three and a half months. It's physically impossible. And a nutritionist who testified at the trial did a calculation of what they could have received in terms of water, etc. And she said that it didn't make any sense. So the nutritionist at the trial concluded that it wasn't possible. And nonetheless, they left the conclusion like that. They died following their incarceration by Dutroux, and Martin was unable to save them, and voila. And this is the legal truth that they gave us. Whereas we're not convinced that they stayed there the whole time. We don't know if they were there for three and a half months or if they were taken somewhere else and then brought back there. I've read the reports from the nutritionist who concluded that it was impossible for Julie and Melissa to survive over three and a half months without expiring from dehydration. In the report, she wrote, quote, Survival for 103 days would not be possible without at least 150 liters of water per child. The amount of water purported to have been supplied by Michel Martin in the middle of January was not sufficient for survival for another seven weeks. Unquote. Julie and Melissa's parents believe that Mark Dutroux wasn't acting alone and that he was receiving help from people who've never been identified, people with the power to pull strings. This brings us to the most crucial question of this entire affair. 
Was Mark DeTrue an isolated predator who only got help from low-level accomplices like his wife Michelle Martin, lackey accomplice Michel Lelievre, and known criminal Bernard Weinstein? Or were others, like the corrupt businessman Michel Nihoul, involved in a more sophisticated, high-level human sex trafficking ring? This question divides politicians, magistrates, journalists, and even victims and their families still to this day. We will explore this question further as witnesses come forward with accusations of conspiracy, abuse, and murder on the next episode of Le Monstre. Next time on Le Monstre. I remember it like it's a film in my head. I can close my eyes and see every little details of that house where she was murdered. A search with the forensic team to analyze all of the hairs and blood and so on would have probably found the DNA of Julie and Melissa. And I still affirm today that the reason they didn't grant me a warrant is that they were afraid to open the door to a possible wider network. This lady is completely crazy. That was our first assessment. Right. I, all the things he is telling us, this is not possible, cannot be true. And also the names he was quoting were people of, of high society, yeah. politicians, heads of, uh, captains of industry, uh, magistrates, police people. So this cannot be true. This is too much. Right. That was a bit the first feeling, I think. And when did you start to believe her? The Monster is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Graves. Produced by Thomas Resimont of Bubble Sound. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on the behalf of Tenderfoot TV with producer Makeup and Vanity Set. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on the behalf of iHeartRadio with producer Trevor Young. Original music by Jay Ragsdale. Sound design by Cooper Skinner and Thomas Resimont. Mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Cover design by Trevor Eiler. La Monstra includes archival audio from Sonuma RTBF archives and CNN archives. Special thanks to Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Jeanne Savigna, and the teams at iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Find us on social media at monster underscore pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 